Today's episode is sponsored by Dead Lemon Games. Dead Lemon Games will be releasing their very first game, Lonely Undead, on Kickstarter on June 7th. Lonely Undead is a zombie board game that seeks to breathe new life into the genre as players assume the roles of recently infected Zs who are out to make friends by biting and infecting the locals. That's right, in this quirky yet strategic adventure crawler, you play as the zombie. Lonely Undead is for 1-4 players and features many ways to play, so be sure to join them on Kickstarter starting on June 7th and never play the same zombie game again. And if you're looking for a partner to help you with marketing, I recommend you reach out to Andrew Lowen at Next Level Web. In the last year, Andrew and his company have helped board game creators raise more than $2 million on Kickstarter, and 91% of those campaigns funded in the first 24 hours, and 74% of those campaigns were from first-time creators. They have a system that works and offer solutions ranging from helping you build ads for your project all the way to fully managing your marketing campaign. So if you're looking for a reliable marketing partner for your upcoming campaign, visit nextlevelweb.com kickstarter and fill out a contact form. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're getting puzzly, talking about puzzle games, and we're talking to Janice Turner from Ren Games. Janice, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, so glad to have you on. Talking about one of my favorite topics right now, I'm designing a game that's got a lot of little puzzle aspects to it, and so I'm just curious. I love talking to people who design games like that, and I'm just really interested in understanding your process and things you've run into and obstacles and and mistakes you've made. So maybe that me and a whole bunch of other people listening don't have to make those same mistakes in their puzzle games. But before we get into it, who are you? How'd you get into game design? All that kind of thing. I'm... I, my, my background is in um, tech, um, so product management, project management, So which is why I quit the self-publishing route kind of works because uh, it builds on all my existing skills. And um, how I got into game design, um, I started when I was on maternity leave with my eldest and uh, it was a way to have a hobby that I could call mine um, and something that I also could do, do my husband's due. Um, so it's just a way that you didn't rely on going out or doing something and it could fit around life as a parent um so that's how I got into game design and and of course I'd been playing games and loved playing games and always sort of thinking well that doesn't work how could I make it better Uh, yeah very cool and so tell me about puzzle games like what what drew you to those in particular I I think it's the the constraints and there's sort of the time time aspect of it is that you a puzzle game you can actually make really short um, and that was kind of one of the the driving factors um, of my game design is that it needed to be fitted around naps of babies. And so I actually started designing a game that took about 90 minutes to play. And just after sort of the first three months, I, I had a kid that like just slept. So, OK, for the first three months, after the first three months, I realized that it was infeasible to continue designing that game because I could never get a 90 minute block or even a 60 minute block necessarily to properly test it. And so it was it was literally lifestyle that dictated the level of the game. And then when you're 
playing games like when we used to always play games that were like two plus hours and then you just realize that the time you actually have to play games are quite short and then you look around at the games that are sort of under 30 minutes under 20 minutes that work well at two players um if they don't work well at two players they're generally a sort of a party game and if they work well at two players they're generally there's not many of them and also we only play cooperative so it was a it was kind of fitting into what we felt was missing um, and what we needed, a game that's got a bit of bite, a bit of depth, a bit of interest and puzzle that works your brain out a little bit, but also something that you can play when you're tired because it's, it's, it uses a bit of the brain, but it's not like something that you need to concentrate on for a long time. So you can have this short burst of concentration, have a load of fun, and then go and flop in front of the TV or whatever you do after a, a busy day of work or whatever your busyness is, whether it is um, parenthood or just general life. Um, but that's kind of how it fell into this sort of sub-30 minute puzzle games. Um, it wasn't an active design choice I want to design a puzzle game it was what can I design that fits into these constraints yeah very cool and I love the idea of nap time games I feel like any parent who hears that phrase is going to know exactly what that means and so it's a really cool concept and it's also great that or it's just it's very interesting how necessity drives game design and so you found yourself in a very specific situation and thought okay how do I turn how do I pivot my game design to that situation. And I think that's so smart because a lot of people, they struggle with that. They, and they, they have a hard time doing it because they think, well, I don't have any time to do this. And so I just won't do it at all. Whereas you were like, okay, I don't, I have this specific amount of time. How do I design games that fit into, into that time? And I think that's brilliant. I think it's a great way to do it. I ran into a, a similar situation when I had like my best gaming buddy moved back to the States from Honduras. And so he left and like, he was my, he was my guy. And like, we were always playing games together and all whatever. And so I was like, well, I guess I'll, I guess I'll just design a bunch of solo games because I'm the only one here. And my wife, you know, she had a lot going on at the time too, because usually she was like a really great play tester, but you know, life happens. And so I was like, okay, I'll just design games that only I have to play. And uh, my play testing process got a lot easier. And so I think that's, that's a good way to do it. Do you have any advice for someone that does struggle with time, whether it's because of kids or just because of job or life or whatever. Do you have any encouragement for them? I, yeah, I, I, every, everything's possible. I mean, I think the fact that the games that I've designed are short and a bit, a bit different to what you necessarily just see out there is just because others don't do it. Don't mean, doesn't mean that you can't do it. So if you've got a great idea, just because you haven't seen, an example out there if it fits your your passion and your lifestyle then don't let anything else stop you from doing it um so yeah that was it and and the solo is exactly the same so um solo gate solo mode in the games that i design are essential because that's how i play test them for a significant portion and if i haven't got that that's how i do it because i mean we tried doing playtesting in games, cafes and stuff and taking the kids along with us. It doesn't really work, <laughs> I can say. Um, and when you've got well, your friends have parents as well with kids, you all come around together and we, we, we sort of tried doing things again. It doesn't really work because you have these constant interruptions. You're constantly needing to go and do other things because you, you do have other priorities. And But that solo mode it works in nap time, just like you said. It's it's not just a nap time game; it's a nap time design as well. Because you can, if you've got 
a nap that lasts 20 minutes, you can hopefully get at least one solo session in. You're not reliant on someone else being available at the time your child falls asleep or at the time you just happen to have some time. And yeah, so that, that's kind of it. And then if you, the, the time suddenly extends, then maybe you'll get two, three, four, five play tests in, um, which is even better. But it means that you can just stretch and fit the knees around you. And I'd say, don't be scared of that. Just do it and see what works with you because if you have something so I I started with a game that was 90 minutes and I just came to the realization that at the current rate I was never going to finish it with the amount of time I had and so I could either keep plodding away knowing that the chance of me finishing it was minuscule um, or I could do something else and so I took all the art um, I actually took the 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 layout because it was actually a ring ship and the, the sort of a some of the basics of it and I made it into a new game and um yeah and I've now looked back and I'm maybe I'll go back to that one one day um but you know what? I think I have actually really started enjoying the games that I've been designing now rather than trying to replicate the co-op games I used to play and enjoyed I found a new niche and I'm enjoying that and so I'm happy um that I changed uh, even though that wasn't my expectation when I set out yeah very cool and I think that's so important to to just embrace it, to not fight against it, to just say, okay, this is where my life is right now. Here's the amount of time that I have. Here's the opportunities that I have. How do I pivot my game designing around that or whatever creative venture you have? You know, I know a lot of writers that wake up at 4 a.m. because their kids get up at five. And so they have that, that four to five time period to write. And that's how they turn ideas into novels and then get them published. And I think it's just what you, what you have to do. And so did you also find yourself getting more efficient with your time? Because you've all got that 20 minute block. And so it's like, okay, there, there can be no wasting of time. Did you find like little tips and tricks to get efficient and making sure that time was used as, as best as possible? Yes, I think so. Uh, definitely when you sort of started out, the uh, setup time, you want something that's relatively quick to set up because then you can get more playtest sessions in um I also sort of uh I, I would always do it the right way according to the rules and then I realized you know what in terms of probabilities it makes next to no difference if I don't reset it out because there are other randomized factors so all I need to do in assembly you've got this ring of cards 12 cards um I used to at the beginning of every place test session or every game would be to shuffle all those up and put them down because that's what you did in the rules then I realized well the tokens are all done the fact where those those are the 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 command deck is shuffled up which allows me to yeah it makes no difference if I leave those the same or not and so then that sort of make things a little bit faster because actually the laying out of 12 cards in a ring is probably the most time consuming bit when I say the most time consuming it might take you 30 seconds but it saves me those 30 seconds that I could then get more time in and you never know when your time's going to run out um so that kind of was was important um, so yeah, it's these little bits and pieces that you work out that won't affect probabilities, even though you've got them written in the rules a certain way, because that's how you would initially set up. And it also provides a, a something that appears more variable. Um, you don't actually have to change from a design perspective when playtesting, because it will have negligible to no impact on the ultimate probabilities, findings, mechanisms that you're trying to test that time in, in, in that yeah in that period yeah for sure and something i found that worked for me in, in my process was, was basically what i guess you could call greasing the track 
and it's getting everything ready so that when it is time to sit down and do game design, that I don't have to do any of the like finding stuff, you know, finding my tools, my scissors, my sleeves, my cards, my dice, like everything is set up. And I'll, I'll do that over the course of maybe a day or two of like, okay, okay, tonight I know I'm going to be working on game design. So let me, right now I've got like two minutes of, of kids not like breaking stuff. And so let me go grab all my prototyping stuff and put it in a certain place. Let me kind of get some things figured out and get them ready. I don't have time to, to design or think about it right now, but I do have time to get ready, right? And let me go ahead and put everything together, right? It's kind of like if you're going to go to the gym or you're going to go play a sport, like go ahead and put your put your clothes on, put your, uh, you know, your gym clothes on, get your sh- your shoes ready, get your bag, get your towel, get all that stuff by the door, all that. That way, whenever it is time to leave, it's all right there. You just pick it up, you get in your car and you go. And I think it's something that's really helped me get a more get more efficient with my time is preparing to then do the work later as opposed to, oh, okay, now it's time. Oh, I got to go find this. Oh, where is that? Where's my ruler? Because now I'm wasting valuable time. Now I'm wasting more than that valuable energy trying to do all those other things. And so that's been something that has helped me. Do you have any other uh, tips for, for people as far as like, getting ready or, or just making your time more efficient or just better overall? I'm, I said, I'm not that great at the preparation, but getting stuff ready. <laughs> That's definitely not, not my strong point at the moment, but I, I think it's more about being mentally ready that you know what you're trying to do in that session. You're not sitting down thinking, ah, okay. So what am I testing today? Have a purpose, know in your head beforehand, even if it's just thinking about what you're planning to do. And it might be, you, you know, you're not got a slot and you're not going to have a transfer until the weekend, which might be three days off. But if you know what you're planning to do and thinking through how things might work, it makes the game session um, much more efficient. And then I have my my book of game design stuff. So anything you, ch- you, you change, make sure you've got a record of it so that you're not going back to try and find out, oh, what did I do? Did I write that down? I don't remember how that worked and, and that kind of thing. So I think, yeah, recording what you did um, and mentally preparing, even if you're not um, physically preparing the stuff around you, make sure you're going into the session mentally prepared so you're not trying to work that out now because you can do that in the car on the way to somewhere wherever you're doing or um when you're doing chores around the house when you're not actually doing game design you can actually be thinking about what do i need to achieve next what's the purpose of my next thing or all the what if this happens how would it play out and then go and test it so yeah that, 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 that's the other one is uh, mentally prepare and you don't have to be sitting down to be doing that you can do that anywhere yeah, that's excellent advice. And I think that really falls into the whole greasing the tracks mentality of I'm going to be prepared. So when I sit down, like I'm sitting on G waiting on O. And that way, when I sit down, let's go and let's let's get to it, whatever we're working on. And I think that's a good way to do it. And, and also writing things down and advice I got a long time ago from, I think, Matt Leacock, who talked about how always write down the problem. Don't just write down the solution. And that's been something that, that I've really taken into account because he said, you know, in his designing, he would write down the solution to whatever problem his game was was showing. And then that solution wouldn't be a good idea. And it would be real hard to remember sometimes, like, what was the what was the original problem that I was solving? And so uh, to always write down problems. And then if you want to write down solutions, go for it. But definitely have that problem written down as well. All right, so let's, uh, let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk actually about the topic. Let's get into puzzle games. First of all, give me your definition of, like, what is a puzzle game when someone says that? What do you, what do you think of? I think that's a quite a, a hard question because it, it can mean a lot of things. Um, 
I think it's something where you are manipulating something to get to a defined outcome would be my my best way of describing it. Um, and whether that be literally a physical jigsaw puzzle where you are manipulating the pieces to get to a big picture or whether you are manipulating cards and playing them in a certain way. Um, I also think that in the puzzle game, luck although there will be an element of it, it will be an element that shouldn't be a dominating factor. Um, yeah, I think I think that's kind of, yeah, so you should always be able to be able to plan, to strategize, to achieve what the outcome. Um, and as you improve and get better at it, you should have a sort of a higher chance of winning. So it's more of the strategic thing. It's not just a plain luck driven thing. So yeah, th- that would be my way of describing it. Yeah, that makes sense. It, it seems that these games have a finished state where once the game gets into this state, it's over uh, and you win. Or if you cannot get it into that state, like if you're beyond, like you don't have enough turns or not, you ran out of time, whatever, and you can't finish the end state, then you lose. That seems to be, uh, would, would, you, would you say it's accurate? Yes. Yeah, definitely. Gotcha. And so why do you think people like these games so much? There's a lot of these games out on the market uh, in, in different angles and for different time periods and things like that. Uh, what do you think it is about puzzles? And also, I saw a stat during the pandemic, jigsaw puzzles, like the sales went up by like a million percent. It was crazy how many people were buying jigsaw puzzles. So obviously people are drawn to puzzles in general. Why do you think that is? Um, I think it's because you could, it can make you feel smart, in, at least in some way, because you are achieving a defined endpoint. And by achieving it, um, you're, you, you've, you've, you've succeeded. And if you haven't succeeded in general, I think in a puzzle game, you can generally look back and see where you made mistakes. And so you always can see how you could improve. And so that, I think, is it, this sort of always pushing, saying, oh, if I hadn't done that, I'd done this instead. Right, let's play again. Let's try again. And let's, let's not make that mistake this time. It's that continual learning moving upwards and then that feel of smartness when you actually achieve it and and get there at the end um so yeah i I think it's that is that that process of learning how to do something and you are actually upskilling it's not something random or anything anything else it it is this thing about you are skilling upskilling as you play the game and getting better at it until you get to the wind bit and then hopefully if it's a good puzzle game you've you've got ways to scale it to make it harder again so that it has that uh, longevity as well yeah, I completely agree. Giving players an opportunity to to feel smart is always yeah. a, a good idea. And uh, puzzle games really, really do that. And uh, and the harder it is, the more likely they are to have that moment of like just feeling overwhelmed with how intelligent they've they've become or they've figured out the skills or whatever it is to, to do it. But at the same time, you want to make sure it's not too complicated. And so I definitely want to talk about that. Maybe, maybe in a minute. Let's talk about that in a minute. First, give me your process. Uh, you, you have an idea. It turns into a theme or maybe it turns into a mechanism first. Eventually, it's going to become this 20 to 30 minute puzzle game. Kind of walk me through how you come up with ideas, how you turn them those ideas into puzzles and all that. And, and as you create a game. So I've, I've done it both ways. So Assembly started with a mechanism, but it's actually it's a mechanism based on real life. So um 
if you're not familiar the, with um, shipbuilding, particularly sort of like um, big frigates, so sort of military ships, um, what happens here in, in the UK is that um, you have about a two-year period with someone who is responsible for it, but the actual build might take 10 years. And then every two years, that person will get replaced and shifted on, and the new person will then have new ideas about what they want. And so the actual premise of assembly is a project management of like a ship build, which is really dull, which is why that's not the actual theme. But um, what happens is that, yeah, so that, that was kind of the, the theme of how it came in. It was this real life thing that happened that every two years the requirements change and that's why why we've got these blueprint cards which are your requirements and then they get shuffled up uh, uh various points in the game which is the changing the requirements it's that new person coming in and changing all the requirements for the ship so that actually that mechanism came in from a, a real life thing and i wondered how could that be represented in a in a game format but it's a very dull theme which is why it then sort of the 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 rest of it got added on. The theme then got imp- implemented about sort of third of the way into the design would be be my my, my rough estimate. So that and Pilfering Pandas, they both started with a mechanism about a third of the way in the theme solidified. And then the remainder of the design process is designing within that box of the theme. So oh, why don't we just do this? Well, how is that thematic? Why is that relevant? It's not relevant. Okay, we can't do that. Then we need to do something else. And so that was kind. Of, that's that. That's how um, both assembly and pilfering pandas was designed. Whereas sensor Ghost is a complete reverse. It was like we have assembly, and at the end of it, they sort of the people, some of the back were saying it would be really good to have a, a continuation of the story. And so we actually set up a story which was traveling through space and trying to get home, and then building mechanisms within that scope of the theme. Um, so that was like very much themes first, mechanism second, where assembly and people and pandas were mechanism first, introduce a theme and then integrate together. Gotcha. And so tell me a little bit more about coming up with a mechanism idea for a puzzle game. Is that something where it just kind of randomly you have an idea or you'll play another game and go, oh, what if we did this, but then like took it this total different direction? Like, tell me that process. It's just completely random, <laughs> which is strange. So, so, so the assembly was um, about changing requirements on long projects. Um, Sensor Ghost was, a, it was about, well, how could I get from A to B? And well, getting from A to B is really boring. Although you could make a puzzle of it, how could I make this more interesting, more challenging, um, more strategic, rather than let's just move A, B, C, D, E, so, which is why it's the bottom of the cards that actually always matters and you can flip them a, a number of times and there's sort of um, a probabilities aspect to it. But the probabilities isn't sort of you need to know all the probabilities. You just need to know an, an approximation of the probabilities. You don't need to know this one is a 16%. It's like, oh, that one's a low probability. That's a medium and that's a high. Um, and then, yeah, that was kind of, it, it, it's a little bit, yeah, I, I'm not sure what else to say, actually. It's, it's I'm not sure how it, it just kind of just, it just happens. Um, because I think when you're trying to do something in such a limited scope and a limited time and you want something that's thinky, that's all that's left to you really is some sort of puzzle. And they, I, I, you can't really have a strong story thematic game because you'd never get into it. Um, but yeah, I've, I've been sitting thinking, how did I come up with the exact mechanisms in each of the games? And it was just 
playing around with ideas in my head generally as I was falling asleep. Um, that's when most of the ideas pop um, into my brain. It's like, oh, why don't we do this? Scribble it down on my phone, go to sleep and then try it the next day. Um, very, very quickly. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. But no, it's not generally playing another game that seeds the idea. It's just some random idea pops up and then I try it. Gotcha. All right. So you mentioned the word thinky a moment ago. How do you how do you do that? Because I feel like it could be really easy to design a game that's annoying and frustrating and it's a puzzle, but it's not particularly fun. And so how do you design a game that is fun, that still is thinky and, and gives players that opportunity to kind of burn their brain just a little bit, especially in these nap time kind of games? Uh, what are Tell me the process. Like, are, are there certain things that work really well or maybe some things that, that you've tried is like, oh, OK, that's just not fun at all. Any of those ideas? So I think the main one is about tying it to the theme because it really limits you to what you can do. And then if what you're doing is intuitive, so like in assembly, it's all about in all of the games, every mechanism that you do has some sort of link to theme, whether that's explicit in the rules book or just in my head there is a reason for every single thing that you do with the hope therefore that it becomes intuitive so the therefore the thinky bit should be about solving the puzzle and shouldn't necessarily be so much about learning all of the rules and so it is I think one of the things is just like kind of stripping things down as much as you can um which yeah it, it, yeah it's about stripping it down as much as you down to the core but without stripping it too much so which is a really fine balance um because it's very easy to strip more out and sort of talking to designers and um at the different ranges some's like oh this is too hard you need to strip more out and others saying well this is too this is not great enough here you need to put more in and i'm in this very weird middle ground where it needs to have that bit more than another game which makes it thinky but not too much because one you don't want to extend it too much and two this is sort of probably well the first two games were designed in sort of a um sleep deprived state <laughs> so it wasn't really it had to be relatively easy because i had to be able to do it and play test it in that sleep deprived state in order for it to work so again it's that sort of c- circumstances that that pushes it that way but yeah, I, I think it's just stuff pops into your head and it's just about getting, yeah, I don't know. I'll stop there. <laughs> yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And so when it comes to increasing or decreasing the difficulty, are there any things, is there anything you found that works really well or anything that you're like, okay, that makes it harder, but it's it's not fun. Like it's not a, a fun harder. Anything like that as far as changing difficulty? Uh, yeah, so I generally take the difficulty to the point that I struggle to win. And when I've got that, I've got my top level of difficulty. Um, that's how I define that. And then I give it to playtesters and they all tell me that it's way too hard and that they can't win. <laughs> so then I have to strip it back. Um, so what I actually do is every time I tweak something from a difficulty perspective, I always keep a note of it if it was a fun thing. Um, so if it was just put in for the sake of it, it they just kind of get chucked out but I always keep all of them so I can always reinsert them back in or take them out in order to level the difficulty and that's where you'll see in the back of the the rule books that we create they always have an increasing and reducing difficulty and those are all the things that have been taken out during play testing as a way that I've been doing things to balancing it up and down um but yeah it's, it's this 
very iterative approach one of them if it the I think the fun element is knowing why you're doing it and if you don't know why you're doing it it's not fun and so that's that's kind of one of the things if if you've got absolutely no idea why you're doing it it's probably it's not fun and therefore it probably shouldn't be in the game if you know why you're doing it and it's progressing the game so by doing this action or whatever it is you feel like you are making progress and you know why you're doing it then it is fun um so i guess that's kind of my my divide is uh make progress and know why you're doing it and if you're meeting both of those two things then it's probably a good idea and then it's just about balancing and refining it to make sure that it's accessible for i like i hate to say your average gamer but accessible for someone that isn't me who knows the game inside out and has a chance and a feel like they're about they they can win because that's the other thing. If it, it's too hard and there's like this feeling of that you will never win, then again, it's not fun. So it needs to be something that doesn't feel too punishing. Um, so again, that's the the fine tuning is how do I make, if there is some sort of penalty, how do I make sure it's not too punishing? And it's often like, well, you could have something that's punishing, but you are choosing to do that over something else. And therefore, then it's not the game's fault. It is the gamer's fault for taking that because they chose that option. So again, the other one is about choice. So I'll give an example there. So in Pilfering Pandas, you get um, you get a penalty for picking up lots of cards and it's it's plus four on it. It's quite a harsh one, but it needs to be that high to give the zookeeper chance to catch up. But if the same person does it twice in a row, then it's actually a plus six or if they do it again, a plus eight. And they can do it. I'm not mandating that that person cannot do it. But if they do do it, it's going to be a harsher penalty. But they could actually work it so that someone else does it, which is not only sharing the fun of the game, but it also is giving a choice that if I take this plus six, which is a harsh, and it could be full punishing, I am choosing to do that. And I'm choosing to do that because I've chosen not to try and find an alternative route. Um, so I think that that's a, a key thing is giving choice of how you do things. Again, in assembly, you have this verification where you have um, the player one will ask the player two a question. Have you got a red card, for example, because the cards are hidden? They'll say yes or no. Because um, the idea is that they both try to push the same button at the same time. And if the other person can't do it, then it costs more um, more. It basically, it takes longer to do it. So you're having to manually override, so you lose more cards. Um, so you you get information from them. And if they say yes, and you both play the red card, or you play the red card, they, they push the button at the same time, then it's all fine. But if they say no, you now know that they are going to lose a card, which is a penalty, which means that firstly, they can't play three cards next round as a wild card. And secondly, you're going to go through the deck faster. And thirdly, they're going to have less choice next turn. Um, so then it comes down to, well, I can play this and I'm going to therefore cause a penalty of my fellow player or I can risk and choose something else, which means that it will, that penalty will possibly not happen. So again, it comes down to a choice. The penalty is harshish to make you think and make a decision, but there's always an alternative. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. And I think it's really good advice as far as one, giving players choices and good choices to make. But I want to go back to what you said a minute ago, as far as doing things that make sense inside the theme. And I feel like that's very, very powerful, very smart. If you're 
if you're in state is you have to put together the spaceship to get off the planet. And the puzzle is you got to find the parts and all that. Well, that makes sense. If then you all of a sudden add in some random things in there that are also requirements, it's like, okay, well, why? And and whenever you have a player say, why? What do like what what is that doesn't make sense? They're not playing the game and they're not like absorbed into the actual playing of the game. And so making things make sense as much as possible to kind of keep them engrossed in whatever actually is happening at the table, I think is really, really good advice. And so along those lines, tell me a little bit more about finished states and coming up with, okay, here is the final end game. Here's the the cards you need. Here's the components, whatever it is of how the game ends. Tell me how you come up with that, how you tweak things. Do you start off there and there's 10 and you got it? Oh, okay, that's too many. I get it. Got it. I got to get it down to five. Tell me about that. So for assembly, it was pretty easy. Um, I suppose actually if we, I didn't necessarily start with 12 cards. I think I iterated between 8 and 14. But that became more about um, enjoyability of the playing experience, that it just felt 12 was nicer because you have that clock face representation and then you've had D12 dice rolls much nicer than a D8. And so it, it, it wasn't just anything else but it's just I think things fell together and worked right and thematically it doesn't make sense to have a half-built ship and launch and so it had to be all of them so that became quite a simple one um in terms of end state of lose conditions that was purely about iterating and seeing what works um I, I don't use spreadsheets so I'm very much gut driven um and gut driven and iteration and testing um and so yeah so assembly all of the games are all purely done not based on me doing probabilities in spreadsheets it's all done based on how well does it actually feel how well does it work it's not numbers it's about experience um which is quite i think important it's it's taught me a lot about user experience for my my day job and um in the sort of hardware and software world but yeah so the end state assembly was very easy is you had to build the ship and you had to finish it um the lose conditions was about well how close can I get it to feel at the end because I want the player to always feel like they could have achieved it had they done something different if they lose and if they win my ideal is that they only just won and they can go look back and say if I hadn't done this we wouldn't have made it and that's kind of my, my perfect balance for end state um for sense of again it was the thematics it's that you've got to get to the other side um, so that was pretty pretty simple, and then everything in between is just a mechanism in sense of ghost. The, the end state is you you get out or you don't. Assembly is you get everything in the place and you don't. And I guess pilfering panda is a little bit different in that the end state has been um, much more malleable. So it's it is about escaping, but where that escape point is is all based on the balance of the game. So it's again it's that that feeling of being able to get there. And knowing what you did that worked well or didn't work well. And so you again, you have that feeling of I could have done this had I done that. Or if I hadn't done that, I wouldn't have won. And so, it's, yeah, Pilfering Pandas is much, much more about the balance of the game. And including sort of in competitive, where you have to have a certain number of cards in front of you. Part of that is to ensure the game length is um, a sensible level. Um, otherwise, you could technically go out in your first turn and that is boring. Um, because the most fun part is about picking up loads of cars. So I wanted to ensure that would happen. And secondly, having enough cards that you have to place in front of you 
allows potentially someone who has a slower start to catch up. So it gives that sort of like slight catch up mechanism. If you have it too few in front of you, you again, you could potentially end the game very quickly before someone else gets a chance. But by having that, forcing the game to last a bit longer, and when I say forcing the game to last longer, I'm, I'm talking like that 10 to 30 minutes length. I'm not talking like 30 to two hours kind of thing. But forcing that up, that extra 5, 10, 15 minutes gives the other players more enjoyment in the game. Yeah, so Pilfering Pandas is very experienced. They, they all are. They're very experience-driven. How does it feel to win at this point? And how can I make that feeling be the best for that game? And which is, I, I think, is often described as sort of, sort of as addictive because that's the aim, is that at the end of the game, you don't feel sort of like you've been cheated upon and that it was the game's fault that you lost. It's always your fault that you lost and it's always your fault that you won. Um, and so that's how the end state is defined to, to make sure that that feeling is core at the end of the game. Yeah, and I think that's a really smart way to, to design, especially puzzle games where the players know that their choices are what led to the outcome. It wasn't a bunch of random luck. It wasn't just the game acting against them and preventing them from winning because it's because the choices that they made and that's why they won or that's why they lost. And now they need to play it again and and change their choices and that kind of thing. So tell me about the aha moment. I know you love designing games so that players had that moment of going, ah, ha there. Okay. Now I see. Let's do it again. So tell me about that. And then how do you design for that? Uh, So I'll quickly tell you about the aha. So in assembly, when you first te- you introduce someone to it, they think it's going to be a really simple game and that it's just going to be totally easy. And you go through it and you tell them about that at, when they go through the first deck first the first time, that everything's going to be shuffled up and moved around. But they never, this is, I love doing this sort of uh, expos and stuff I'm watching them through their first round and then this sort of sudden look on their face as they realise that they thought that it was this easy thing that was just manipulating everything round and then they suddenly, oh, you told me about that. I haven't considered it. <laughs> and then, so, then suddenly they understand actually it's not about trying to do it over the long term. You've got to do short sprints to, to win the game. And that's the aha moment in assembly is you have this almost forced lose potentially on the first game if you haven't taken that one piece of information in but you learn it in your first game and you learn it very very fast and you can improve in that in that game but you're less likely to win but then in your second game you know what you're doing in sense of ghosts um i think i got the balance slightly wrong i don't think i put quite enough hints in um so again i said it's about getting from a to b and it's about the bottom of the cards I noticed that quite a lot of people seem to be trying to remember the entirety of the grid. And it's something, I can't remember what it is now. I think it's like five by eight or that sort of level of cards. And you're trying to remember, they're trying to remember seven or eight cards at once. And it's like, no, everything's going to change up there by the time you get there. All that matters is what's in front of you, not what that's, that's far away. All that matters is what's in front of you and manipulating your local environment and then just having brief thoughts about what's ahead um so i think i got that one slightly wrong in um communicating it um but again it has that aha moment and those that do do it i I think they are the ones that get the most out of the game because they're not trying to remember something that is hard to do and just remembering stuff is boring and it's not about that it's that it's all about strategy it's about if i only flip 
cards over because you can tell if they're being flipped or not cards so if i only flip cards over so that i always flip them so they're safe face down then i've got a strategy and i don't need to remember those cards all i need to remember is my strategy and my strategy isn't changing throughout the game and then i've got these memory cubes that if i do something that isn't my strategy i can use those to mark that i've not used my strategy here and then all I have to do is remember my exceptions. And that's the aha moment in Sensor Ghost. But I, I didn't communicate that one well enough, I don't think. And then in Pilfering Pandas, that was really interesting with the playtesters. And it took quite a while to get them out of the bad habit of just trying to get rid of all their cards or just trying to get sets. Um, because it's more than that. And... In particularly in cooperative and solo, the hideout, which is a, a discarded tile with a spread, and you can pick up multiple cards from it. And the idea is that's a communal hand. And so I started actually changing all of the wording in the book. It's not a discard pile, it's a hideout. And I never refer to it as a discard pile because a discard pile is where you chuck away stuff that you don't want. And so I want to try and get people thinking about this is not where you chuck stuff you don't want. This is where you are communally working together to build up something great that one of you will grab. And so it's this sort of subtle change of language to try and get that understanding. Um, and the more you play it, the more you'll understand that the first one will be you'll probably chuck all your rubbish in there. And then suddenly you'll realise, actually, if I if I give you put this down here and we build that set up there, that's actually much better. And it's this sort of gradual learning process and you get that aha moment again. Um, I think it's perhaps less visible in the competitive. I think it's more the aha moment in the competitive. If, if you've played cooperative, it's the, dis, the discard pile, the hideout is a completely different kettle of fish. It's no longer this communal hand or in solo extension of your hand. It's this place that you do want to do the exact opposite of what you do in cooperative and solo, literally completely potentially to your own detriment. Because by putting, I don't know, if it's got already three two twos in there and you've got a two in your hand and you don't want that two, if you put that down, the next player gets a set pretty much for free. But if you chuck that one away that you might have wanted you're preventing that. And then maybe next time you could pick up the hideout and take that set instead. So it becomes a very different. And so the aha moment there is about, um, it's not always best just to chuck away the card you don't want. It's about making sure that the next person doesn't get something that's good, um, which is a slightly different way of thinking about things. Yeah, definitely. All right. So you mentioned hints a second ago. And so tell me how, how do you hint to the player? Maybe it's in the rule book, maybe it's in the cards. I'm not sure, but like, how do you hint to them some of the ideas or some of the strategies that's maybe going to help them? How do you kind of help them along? So in assembly, it's literally in your first game, you learn it. It literally is that simple is that you'll just find out after your first game, what happened. And because it's such a low time commitment, it, that's absolutely fine. It's low setup, low time. So I, I see no issue with that. You you learn by doing. In Sensor Ghost, we've got um, tips, strategy tips littered throughout the rule book, suggesting you should do it this way or don't forget, think about this, think about that, without sort of saying you should do this. It's sort of just saying don't forget to consider this and well, have you tried that. It's, it's, an, it's trying to provoke them to put them on the right track rather than just telling them straight out because if you tell them straight out there is no aha moment whereas if you guide them there then they can achieve it and feel smart 
Um, and so, so that's great. And then in, as I said, in Pilfering Pandas, it's, it's all been about the language that are used in there so that it's not discard a card to the hideout or discard a card to the discard pile. It's a play a card to the hideout because you are playing something which is part of the game mechanism, a very important game mechanism, and it's not just a throwaway thing. So in Pilfering Pandas, it has a couple of tips in them, but not so many, but most of it's been done by language. How, do, how can I communicate how I interact with something in a way that you can't misconceive it in another way? And that's become quite an issue and diversion between the competitive and the co- cooperative rules is that the competitive, it is discard a card because that, that is what you're doing. And cooperative, it's not. It is play a card. And although the mechanism and the, the order is exactly the same, those word differences, I think, are vital to the understanding of the strategy. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. I want to talk more about competitive versus co-op in just a minute. But first, let's talk about patterns. So psychologically speaking, our brains as humans really love to finish patterns. If you ever go in a room and go, dun, 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 dun like somebody's going to have to go, dun, dun, like if they don't, they're going to have aneurysm. Like it's just how our brains work. We have to finish the pattern. And so tell me about how do you use that for your advantage with a puzzle game and creating these opportunities for patterns and, and making it work inside the game? Um, I think it's just something that comes naturally rather than looking to do something. I mean, assembly, it's about completion. You're building a spaceship and you're flipping the cards over um, on the other, once you're outside, which gives you that feeling and sense of completion. And so you actually can see it building and forming. In Sensor Ghosts, it's about your progression, that you're always moving forward and you can actually see where you are progressed to. Um, I'd say Sensor Ghosts has less pattern in it and perhaps more mathsy. Um, yeah, and then Pilfering Pandas, there's this, well, set collection is pattern, isn't it? You're always wanting to try it. And I think that's the kind of the thing in it is that you can feel really smart when you join two sets together. So you could do, that's all about it. So rather than traditional set collection, you always have distinct sets that you're playing down and that each one is an individual set In pilfering pandas, the previous set you have directly influence the next set that you play. And so you always constantly have this pattern, but what's the optimum way? What order do I actually order the cars within my set? Do I go red, blue, green, or do I do green, red, blue? because that's going to impact what you do next. Um, so, yeah, there, there's definitely patterns in there, um, but it's not something that I think I consciously think about. Okay, I got you. Uh, it's, it's one of those things, maybe because our brains work that way naturally, you don't think about it. Like, oh, you don't yeah. have to necessarily think about it, right? <laughs> my, my background is physics and engineering, so I think it's just kind of like inbred into me um so yeah so sort of maths physics engineering everything the world to me is a pattern everything i see around me is is a pattern of some sort and so i just think in patterns so i'm not consciously looking to create a pattern the pattern just already exists and i'm just helping it come to life (laughs) yeah that makes sense now Uh, all right so let's go back to cooperative versus competitive what are some other things that you found as far as challenges maybe even as far as like benefits of one doing it one way versus another. Tell me about that. It's been quite interesting to find competitively because I don't play many competitive games. Um, and it's, it's 
it's it's been a bit, a bit of a difference. But I get there's this one is sort of one that's based on a game that I played growing up, so I I have this sort of intricate knowledge of how it works, and that as I said, I have this sort of gut. It's really bad. I I did a doctorate, and a lot of it was based on gut, and this is engineering, so <laughs> I have this sort of gut way of doing things. Um, so and. It just happens to work, luckily. Um, but it was quite different. As I said, the language was a real key differentiator between the two. And the thing I found hardest with competitive is that if you have unbalanced players, you can have a very, very detrimental play experience. Whereas in co-op, you can overcome that by various mechanisms to, if you've got one player that's much more stronger than the others, you, as I said, like the, the this raise suspicion card that forces the, the, the pickup to be shared around the group. It means that that player can do it, but they want to win. Therefore, they need to share it to other players, which means other players get a chance and which means that they grow the game too. And so in cooperative, it's, it's much easier. You can share it around, but in competitive, I'm still, I think, learning how do you balance it to account for that more experienced player and that negative game experience. And I guess there's an argument that it's not your job, that that's their problem, it's their game group. But I still feel an element of responsibility for that um, because I don't want someone to have a negative game experience. I want them to have a way to try and play it so that they have the best possible game experience no matter their circumstances. And maybe that's a ridiculous goal, but uh, that, that's kind of what I try to do. And that's the thing that I've struggled most is that uneven players in competitive are much, much harder to balance than they are in cooperative. Right. And that's a good thing to really just be aware of and intentional about. And it just comes down to a lot of playtesting. What else, as far as balance, have you found as far as maybe things that make balancing these types of games a little bit easier, whether it's adding an extra thing you have to find, an extra card, an extra ship component, whatever, to kind of balance things out to make it a little bit easier, a little bit harder, uh, or anything along those lines as far as tweaking the balance? Uh, so somebody, it's almost purely down to the deck. Um, and how many cards in that deck? I think we settled at about 16. Um, and so, uh, but it wasn't working. So that's why we actually, in you take two cards out at the start, because if each card is worth three cards, because you go through the deck three times. But we didn't, we didn't want every card to be worth three cards, which is why two cards got taken out, which worked beautifully as a round counter. But it also means that one of them is only worth two cards and the other one is only worth one card. And so that was a way to balance it, was to actually pull cards out the deck and reduce their frequency that they're seen as a way to balance it because one additional card is plus three is a significant change to the deck in in such a small deck and so to get it balanced perfectly there was a lot of playing around and then it's about which cards to pull out um to make sure that the sort of the do you pull out the most powerful cards or do you pull out a mixture of the two and so that was kind of um one of them in, in terms of getting balancing um trying to think well, what else in, in pilfering pandas um it's been very much about the points allocation for doing something and how much they each of those are worth. Um, the plan is uh, we've got something that I think works pretty well at the moment, but I still think it could be improved. And as the the manufacturing slots not till the autumn, I've got time to improve that further. Um, so it's just going to be about how can we make it a bit more because it's again um, Pilfering Pandas has the same as Sensor Ghost. It has a slightly steeper learning curve. 
Um, and then once you got it, you're kind, you're kind of fine. But it's how can we fine tune it to reduce that learning curve, but still provide challenge. Um, but yeah, that, that's all about balancing the points for the different actions that you're doing and making sure that it also makes sense. So if something costs more, that there is a reason why it costs more or the reason why you're getting those points, uh, negative or positive, so zookeeper or pandas. Right. One thing I ran into with some of my own designs that are not necessarily puzzle games, but they do have a puzzle nature to them is just kind of figuring out how many of each card need to be in the deck. So I had a game that's like, okay, I've got 10 of this type of card in there and it just wasn't enough. And it's like, okay, what if, what if I did 15? It's like, okay, that's way too many. And it was just kind of like going back and forth of figuring out the exact number. I think I landed on 13 as being the perfect number of cards to be inside the deck. And then this other type of card, there's four and another one, there's seven. And it just takes a ton of, of playtesting and really just kind of a gut feeling of, okay, the game feels right. It feels challenging, but not overwhelming. It feels hard, but not unwinnable. And just kind of going back and forth with the, the kind of tweaking of the numbers over and over again. And so tell me about any experience you've had like that. And um, just playtesting in general, any tips or ideas as far as playtesting these kinds of games? So in Pil- actually saying that, in Pillframe Pandas, we went from four suits to five suits. So your traditional deck of cards has four suits. Um, but we went to five because um, when you had, for example, if you want to do a number and you have to have at least three of them, that means that you need three of the four of them. But if you go to five suits, then you have increased the probability of being able to get one of those number sets. And so that was actually quite a fine tuning. We start about how many cards and when there was it. So we started with like one to 13 in five suits and then slowly iterated it and worked out how many you actually needed at each player count for the probabilities to feel right, but also have enough cards in the deck that you had a decent play length and also to stop the, the right cards coming out every time. So there is an element of randomness, but there's a randomness that you can have an, an, an element of control based on the probabilities in the deck, and you can always change direction that, that you're going. But yeah, it took, us, took me quite a while to get the right number per suit. Um, and we ended up with um, one to seven for one to two players because you want... Because you haven't got so many people around the table, you haven't got as many cards in hand, which means you have less chance of being able to put the right cards down for the other players. And so therefore you need to increase the probability of getting the right cards. And therefore you need to, rather than just take out a random number of cards, reduce the number down so that the probability of the card you want coming out is much better. But as you go up in play account, you have more cards out and therefore you can cope with a little bit more randomness because you also have a little bit more control. And so there you can add them in. But taking it up to 13 and like five suits and 13, it just became too random. And so which is why we brought it down and the sort of the limit is at nine cards. So you've got that one to one to nine. And then the other aspect was the key cards, which were essentially a wild card, is how many of those go in the deck. Um, yes, you could accidentally get them two out in the first part of the game and you could seed them in the deck. But if you have to seed them in the deck, that increases setup time, which is not fun. Um, so the probability of that happening is lower. And so therefore, the, the, but the probability of annoyance of setup is much higher. So then it becomes to me this sort of risk trade off of that I'd rather have everyone to have a good setup every game and then have this sort of maybe slightly easier game once in a while because two wild cards come out at the start. Um, and to me, that's a good trade off. It's 
just like thinking out of bugs in software, if you've got a bug that is going to have um, a significant impact on user experience, but is very, very, very low probability, or you have something that is going to have an effect on user experiences, but it's going to happen all the time, you're probably better off fixing that one because that one overall is going to have a, a greater effect, particularly if there's a workaround. So that's kind of how to do it is that there's also this emphasis on experience or the, the user experience is okay I might be able to do this a little bit better in a different way or I could balance it a bit better that way but ultimately this user experience is better and I will forego that balance in order to make the user experience better in 90 plus percent of the time for the sake of this potentially happening in less than 10 percent of the time and these are not these are not precise figures it's just sort of that that weighing up that balance between the two yeah, for sure. Experience, in my opinion, is always worth uh, leaning that way as opposed to leaning towards balance. Balance at the end of the day is, is perception. Anyway, you could have the most balanced game in the world and you're still going to get a lot of people online that say that you've never play tested this at all. And so it just you might as well lean towards player experience and giving them the best time that they can have. As far as play testing, any other tips, ideas, anything that you found works really well or doesn't work at all as far as puzzle games? public play testing is all over the internet um, and generally not live um, but what I've really found quite useful is when play testers video their play test session and so you're, you're, you literally are um, a fly on the wall in that play test session and watching their thought processes because those thought processes are what helps you make the game intuitive so understanding a playtester's thought process, if they think that when they look at it, this is how they should be doing it, and you get that as a consistent theme, just because you designed it to be a different way probably doesn't mean that the way that they're doing it isn't the right way. And so I can't think of an example off the top of my head, but there have been changes that we've actually now done what other people have done because we've seen to others that is the more intuitive way and so we have then said, right, that's a more intuitive way. So we should be doing that just because we didn't think it, but that's what others are doing. So yeah, look for how they do things and look for how they do things that are intuitive to them and change where you need to. Don't think your way is the right way because ultimately, as I said before, it's just about everything should be done for a reason and a purpose. And if they don't see that reason or purpose and they do it in a different way, then that's going to negatively impact the experience on the gameplay. Yeah, that's excellent advice. I'm reminded of a long time ago, I saw this uh, documentary about products and how they come to be and all the different stages along the way. And they were talking about toothpaste. And these engineers had come up with this better way to open the toothpaste that was easier it was like so much better in their opinion. And you just pop the top off. You just kind of pop it off and then you use your toothpaste, you pop the top back on. And what they found in testing is that everyone that was given that tube of toothpaste would, would twist it, trying to, to turn it and trying to unscrew it and pull it off like so many other toothpaste tubes that they'd had in the past. And they would just spin it and spin it and spin it and it would never come off. And they'd be like, hey, it's broken. Sorry, you're, uh, you're <laughs> like, it's broken. It does work. And the engineers are like so frustrated. Like it's so much better to do it the other way. But our, our users, our customers don't get it. And so they just went back to having one that uh, unscrewed. And so I think that's super valuable just to go, you know what, this is, this is how people are playing it. And so let's, let's just roll with it. Let's not fight against yep. it. And also, I guess with co-op games, it's a little bit easier because they're, they're saying their thought process. Like if in a competitive game, I'm not going to tell you what I'm thinking. Cause I don't want to reveal my strategy, but in a co-op game, I'm like, okay, I'm going to go here and do this and do that. And then what if we do that? Like people are actually telling you as the designer what's going on in their heads. And I find that to be super helpful. Yeah, definitely. It's 
really, really helpful. <laughs> well, excellent. Well, Janice, this has been awesome. Do you have any closing thoughts, any advice, any encouragement you would give to someone who is designing a puzzle game or thinking about it? Just go for it. Um, what have you got to lose would be my main piece of advice. Um, and my other one is try not to make it overly complex. Um, complexity doesn't necessarily equate, may, may, well, it may equate to a tougher puzzle, um, but it doesn't necessarily equate to a fun game. So don't get, um, don't, don't think complexity equals to good game. Um, you need the right level of complexity and the right level of fun. And it's a very fine balance between the two. Yeah, for sure. Well, hey, you got Pilfering Pandas on Kickstarter right now. Tell me about that. Give me like the two minute elevator pitch for that. Uh, so it's based on um, a game I grew playing up, which has uh, links to Rummy, which I think I recently found out as a result of Kickstarter is like Rummy 500. Um, it's designed around uh, the discard pile mechanism where it's spread. So all players can see everything that's been discarded historically. And in both in all of the three variants, solo, competitive, cooperative, you can pick up lots of cards at once. And you get to take them all into your hand and then you build loads of sets with them. But it's not just building sets because the sets you create from one, you then the next one, you have to link suit or number in order to play the next one. So it's this planning about where it goes. And then in the cooperative and solo, you also have the two meerkats that you're trading with. And the more you give one of them, the higher the suspicion. Because if you visit a meerkat too much, I mean, the zoofeeper is going to wonder what on earth you're doing. Um, so you've got to sort of spread it out between the two of them. But it's player choice as to how they do it. It's just a higher penalty if they don't spread it out. So again, going back to that sort of giving choice that I'm encouraging a certain type of gameplay, but you actually... It's in the interest of the player to do it that way, but you don't have to. But yeah, it's about set collection with planning. And if you don't plan, you won't win. And that's, I think, the thing that we found from playtesting and others is that people look at this and think, Ice is a really simple game. And then they play it and they realise it's not. It's not as simple as it it looks. And that, that, that's the thing that I think is struggling to convey the most. It's not just get some cars, play some sets and get out. It's actually get some cars, play some sets, build on those sets to create something much bigger and then get out and then know when's the right time to escape because there are other factors that will impact whether you manage or not. Um, so, yeah, that, that's a very mechanical description, but I guess that probably suits this better than elsewhere. Um, but, yeah, so it's it's set collection with a, a twist, something a bit different that has direct impact on your future actions. Awesome. Well, Janice, really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you joining me on the show. Good luck with creating more puzzle games and everything else you got going on right now. I've got one other quick thing to say is um, if you do like complexity and hard puzzles and that sort of thing, um, just because it's not in your main game doesn't mean you can't put an Easter egg in the box somewhere. So um, if you have that sort of real desire to create something, so in assembly, there is a puzzle hidden in there that will take you about two, I think people said taking about two hours to solve. Um, so you can always put in something for the, the meteor bits that can be done in chunks as well. So um, yeah, you can have a puzzle in a puzzle still. Uh, yeah, for sure. Oh, that's that's a really cool. That's a really good uh, good little thing to add in there, and maybe not even tell people. Just kind of let them figure it out on their own. Exactly. Well, cool. Again, thanks for your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. 
Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?